Nice to see you. Hopefully you received some message notes when you came in. Um, you're going to want to grab those out and then uh, hopefully you have a Bible or a phone or something like that nearby where you can follow along in our scripture as we are going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 2. And so we welcome you as it's kind of turning the corner toward Christmas and we are so excited about that. In fact, today we are beginning our Christmas uh, sermon series called Born for This. And Born for This is all about helping us focus focus on the mission of Christ. What did Christ come to do? What is his uh, true mission? Um, And so much of that is revealed specifically in the miracle of Christmas. Um, Because let's be honest, um, it seems like Christmas can be a little confusing sometimes. We may not notice that because we're kind of in our routine, but I want you to try to imagine, if you can, that you landed here from some other country that didn't celebrate Christmas, didn't have anything to do uh, with Christmas, and you landed here in America, and you had to figure out what this big Christmas holiday was all about just by kind of observing what's going on uh, around you. And so someone told you that Christmas is about Jesus and, and even read you the story and said you had that much frame of reference, but you look around and stuff just doesn't quite make sense because you read about the poverty of the, of the stable that Jesus was born in. And that just doesn't seem to compute with kind of the extravagance of a Black Friday or the, the spending frenzy of, you know, Cyber Monday or, or something like that. And you look around and you see all the light displays in front of people's homes and, and you know, the big giant inflatable things and it's beautiful and you love it, but you think that seems different than like the star of, of Bethlehem. And apparently angels, have somehow been replaced by flying reindeer. I don't know how that happened. And maybe Mary and Joseph are elves from the North Pole. There's got to be some connection there. Um, And in the Bible, you know that there were these wise men that bring gifts. But now there's just a guy in a UPS truck that shows up and like puts a package on your front door uh, pretty much every day this time of year uh, for most of us. And then, of course, the central figure of this whole thing has got to be, right, the the guy in the the big jaw guy in the red suit that's the, the last one in at the, every parade, and the kids send a, a message with their wishes to him, and you know, everybody's so excited. He's kind of the center of attention wherever he is, and, and that's fun, and you like it, but you're just kind of scratching your head because you think that seems so different from uh, the, this, this infant, this baby that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger because there was no room in the inn. And so the point is, you can see why, even for people that are familiar with Christmas, that there can be a little bit of confusion. Now, my goal is not to bash those traditions, and and there's a lot of things that can be fun in those things, but rather my goal today and throughout this Christmas season is for us to kind of pull back and refocus a little bit and ask the question, if Jesus really is the central figure of Christmas, if Jesus really is the hero of Christmas, and if Jesus really is the central figure of our faith, in fact, we believe that Jesus is the central figure of all of human history, and if all those things are true, then what did he come for? Why would we say something uh, so big like that, that he's the center of human history? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some amazing scriptures that I think are going to point us to the mission of Christ. All year long, we've been talking about what it means to be people that live our lives on mission, and Jesus teaches us so much about that um, through Christmas. So today's message is called Born to Serve, Born to Serve. And our scripture is not a a normal uh, Christmas 
Christmas passage. There's no shepherds or angels in this, but it just may be the earliest description of kind of the theology of Christmas. In fact, almost everyone agrees that this great passage that we're about to read here together in just a little bit was actually one of the earliest Christian songs. It's a song or a a poem, uh, which would make it the first Christmas carol. And the Apostle Paul takes this song that somehow was circulated in the early church, and he includes it in his letter to the church at Philippi. And he does it in, I think, a super powerful way. Now, before we read uh, the scripture from the book of Philippians, you should know that the Philippian church in the first century, when Paul writes this letter, in many ways was like the model church. Of all the New Testament churches, the Philippian church was one of the strongest. They were founded by the apostle Paul himself. And um, even though they were really right in the heart of kind of the the oppressive and evil Roman empire, uh, they still found this way to be this healthy um, and even growing church. It actually chapter 16, you read a little bit about the church in Philippi, and you see that it's made up of kind of a diverse group of people, men and and women from different backgrounds, whose lives have been transformed by Christ. And and so they come and they form this church together, and they love one another for the most part. And we see that um, uh, they gave to the poor, we're told specifically. They share the gospel with other people. They support Paul in his ministry. And yet, when you read the book of Philippians, you see kind of underneath the surface that there are some storm clouds on the horizon. Now, maybe it's because success sometimes gives way to to pride or something like that, but there were seeds of pride in this Philippian church that were beginning to grow up and bear fruit. And the the, the fruit that uh, these seeds of pride were bearing were things like selfishness and disunity and even disagreements among the church, people kind of digging in and, and even fighting with one another. In fact, case in point is you have these two prominent women that are just talked about in chapter four. Their names are Yodia and Syntyche, and they are having some sort of disagreement. We're not even told exactly what the disagreement is, but Paul calls them out by name in the Bible to tell them to get along with each other. How would you like your name to be remembered in the Bible forever and ever because of that? Well, they're having this disagreement, and Paul understands human nature, right? People are going to easily be drawn into choosing this side or that side, and there's going to be factions, and little cliques are going to form, and there could be all sorts of disunity around this. So Paul knows that throughout Philippians, he has to address this issue of unity. And the way he does it, at least to me, is just fascinating, because Paul doesn't dig into the argument and say, you know, here's Yodia's side, here's Syntyche's side. He doesn't, you know, explain all those things and say, you know, you're right here and you're right there. No, he doesn't choose sides. What Paul does is he actually points us to the attitude of Jesus Christ. And he says, the the way you figure this stuff out is you have an attitude like Christ that is an attitude of service and sacrifice. And kind of exhibit one in Paul's argument is this amazing song that is recorded for us in Scripture. So that's some of the background that gets us to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. I hope you have your Bible open because you're going to want to follow along 
with this. Philippians 2, I'm going to read all 11 verses. It goes like this. It says, therefore, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So in other words, Paul's saying, if, if you've experienced some of the goodness of God in your life and you've experienced that, then you need to pass that kind of stuff on to other people. Because if you've experienced any of this, verse 2, it says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded with one another, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Get this, do nothing out of a selfish ambition, right? That selfish ambition that's always right there underneath the surface in our life. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And here's where the song begins. He says, describes Jesus like this. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there you go. Not only is this this old, uh, the oldest Christian song, or one of the oldest Christian songs, but it's also a hugely important scripture when it comes to understanding what we call the doctrine of the incarnation, because that's really what Christmas is about, the incarnation of God into flesh. And so this teaches us some core stuff about the doctrine of the incarnation, although even as we dig into this, you're going to see that maybe you'd even pick this up as you're reading it. It feels like there can be almost kind of conflicting truths that are in here that are almost kind of uh, conflicting with one another, equal realities. And yet we see uh, that, uh, that both of these are true in who Jesus was and what Jesus did. So the first reality is this, and it's up there on the screen. The first reality is this, is that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Uh, the scripture there, uh, if you want to, is look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. It says, have the same mindset or attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. And maybe you want to circle that phrase there, the very nature God. Some of the older translations have the, 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 the description of he was in the very form of God. That's actually not a, a great translation because form tends to speak of kind of outward appearance. But the, the word that is actually translated very nature here in the NIV is the word morphe. It stands for the essence or the nature or the character of God. Who you are at your very core is your very nature. And Paul says this, he says, at his very core, he was God. So in other words, he was not some imitation God. He was not some knockoff, lower level God. He was not the JV team God. He was by very nature God. And so when Paul 
sends this off to the Philippians, he really is just kind of agreeing and affirming with what so many of the other apostles are teaching in their same letters. So for instance, in the Gospel of John, uh, Paul affirms what John writes when he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, who's Jesus, was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. He affirms the same thing uh, from the author of the book of Hebrews, who, who in Hebrews 1 says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And Paul even affirms what Jesus himself taught about himself. When gathered around with a, a crowd one time and they're asking, who are you? Jesus says it like this. He says, before Abraham was, which is a long time ago, it was kind of like the beginning of time for them. Before Abraham was, I am. And he says, not only do I extend beyond time, but he there uses the very word that is describing God, his most holy name, the name Yahweh. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I was Yahweh. Now, interesting, I believe Jesus fully knew what was going to happen next, which was after Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. What do they do? They pick up stones because they're going to stone him because they're accusing him of blasphemy because they're saying, you're comparing yourself to God. And so the point is, we see that, um, uh, the, the, the point is that, that the, the deity of Christ, this idea that Jesus is fully God, is taught by all of the apostles, the ones that walked most closely with Jesus. And not only did they teach it, but they lived for that truth. And maybe more importantly, they were willing to die for that truth, that Jesus is fully God. By the way, this is a interesting and kind of an important point of discussion with your Mormon friends or with your Muslim friends who, who trusted Jesus but, but don't see that, that deity uh, in him. Jesus is fully God. But that's not all. That's the first reality. I said there are potentially conflicting realities in there because the second reality that Paul is super clear on is this, is that Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully man. Verse 7 says it like this. He made himself nothing by taking on, same, same word, the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So we know that he's in very nature, God, essence, character, at his core God, and at the same time, very essence, at his core, a servant and human. So talk about your downward mobility, right? Talk about this guy who takes a pathway down. Because here's the one who's only ever known the glory of heaven uh, at the, the right hand of the Father. The one who knit us together, was active in not only the creation of the world, but, but actually knit you and I together inside our, our mother's womb from conception. God knitting together, Christ knitting us together. And now the one who knit us together in our mother's womb has to be entered into the world through the womb of a teenage girl. And not just any, uh, not just born to privilege, but, but born as a, a peasant. His first sight was not going to be the palace or the temple like you would expect for a king or a priest, but his first sight is going to be what? It's going to be from the inside of this cold, dark cave because there wasn't even room for him in the, the local hotel or the local hostel. His first smell was not going to be incense rising up in, in worship or the smell of sacrifices being offered that were coming up to the throne of God. No, his first smell was going to be uh, the, that of the, the cattle and the sheep. 
The one who spoke the world into existence by his word, as John just taught us there, is now going to have to learn to speak from his human parents. He was going to be dependent on them to change his diapers and wipe his nose and teach him to walk and read and work. God, my friends, had a belly button. He was fully man. In fact, I love uh, a couple quotes here. Um, This is one that I've read on more than one Christmas occasion before because it describes the incarnation in such a beautiful way. It's from a a 19th century scholar who happened to be the president of Princeton University. His name is Benjamin Warfield, and this is what he says. He says, The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man. So in other words, he's not like uh, uh, a God and he just takes on a little bit of humanity or he's not a man and takes on a little bit of God, but a true God-man. One who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is. One on whom, uh, whose almighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. Because that's what we have in God. It's one who is, transcends beyond our understanding but came close to us. That's what the incarnation is about. What a servant would take that kind of route. Uh, N.T. Wright in more modern times addresses this potential conflict between being all God and all man uh, by saying this, and I love this. He says, the decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross, get this, this decision was not a decision to stop being God. It was the decision about what it really means to be divine. So in other words, what he's saying is God didn't become, a, uh, by becoming a man, didn't lessen who he was. He was still in very nature God. But what it does is it demonstrates to us deity, God's divine nature in a new and a surprising and an upside down sort of way. Because usually we're used to the person who's got the most power grabbing more power right? And, and going higher and being stronger. And here the one who's got the most power doesn't grasp a hold of it, but actually lowers himself. And it's humility and sacrifice and love that actually prove his deity to us and prove his true greatness to us. Now, uh, that's what the incarnation um, is, but why? Well, you know, so if that's what it's about, why would, would God do this? Uh, what was Jesus born for? What was his mission? Let's just keep going in this passage. And we're actually going to do like a little bit of Bible study here. So I hope you have your Bible open um, because I want you to notice kind of this downward path that Jesus takes. And the, the lyrics of this song kind of just point this downward mobility um, of God himself. Because though he was God, this is what we read about him. It says that he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He actually emptied himself is uh, maybe the, the most direct way to translate that. If he was all God, you say, well, well, what did he empty himself of? What does that mean that he emptied himself? Well, when Jesus came to earth, he let go of some of those divine uh, qualities. Uh, for one, his divine glory, right? The glory of God is, is unapproachable. For if any of us were to see God in his full glory, none of us could even live to see that unless God's glory is somehow veiled. And so Christ veils the, his glory by taking on uh, flesh, He empties himself of his divine riches, right? God not only made everything, but he explains it like this. I own the cattle on a thousand hills, which is God's way of saying everything there is in the universe, it's all mine. And yet Jesus comes to earth and he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. 
and he emptied himself of some of his characteristics like his omniscience or his omnipresence, which is to say Jesus set aside the ability to be in all places at one time and to know all things uh, perfectly. He was limited in even his human knowledge in in, uh, certain areas. But the point is, in his humility, in the incarnation, he gave up some of his rights. And that is so foreign in our world today because we have everything in our culture, no matter what side you're on, saying this, grab a hold of your rights. Grab a hold of them and don't let go and advance those things. And Jesus came to show us a different way. He actually lets go of his rights. So he made himself nothing. Not only that, he took on the very nature of a servant. He took on the very nature of a servant. The, the word there, uh, doulos, is most accurately translated as slave or bond servant. And again, it's just kind of interesting to me. We would think, okay, if he's the king of heaven, at least he'll come and he'll be the king of earth. But he comes and not only is he the, leaves from being the king of heaven, but now he goes all the way and is a servant. He's made in the likeness of humanity. So he takes on uh, flesh. And truth check here, Jesus didn't even make himself this great looking stud. I was thinking about this. If I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm God, but I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to earth. At least when I choose my body, I'm going to come, I'm going to look like the rock, right? Or I'm going to look like Brad Pitt or something like that. Do you know how scripture describes Jesus' appearance? This was a, a prophecy about it. Isaiah says it like this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In fact, all of the same problems that you and I have with our bodies, he had that stuff too. He got tired, he got hungry, he got sick, but he made himself in the likeness of humanity. He humbled himself. That's kind of the, the key of this whole message is this humility and service. And when Jesus describes himself, one of the key character traits that he gives to himself is that he is humble and gentle. In fact, some of you just need to hear Christ speak these words to you today. He says, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden. If you are tired, if you are overburdened, he says, come to me. Why? He says, because I am gentle and humble of heart. And in me, you will not find that judgment, but you will find the rest for your soul and the grace of God that can set your soul free. Forgiveness for your sin, kindness Grace, Jesus says, come, leave those burdens behind and come to me. And he describes himself as humble. And though he was humble, one of the ways he showed that is he not only took on humanity, but he came obedient to death. He said, I'm going to die like everybody else at the end of this human life. And not just was he going to die in a death, but he was going to die the very worst death, even death on the cross, the worst thing that we can imagine. So as I said, talk about kind of your downward nobility. I wanted us to see kind of the, the stair step down that he, that he took. And now we're kind of familiar with this because we talk about Christmas and we're kind of used to this and kind of polished it up and made it likable to us. But honestly, it's hard to wrap our minds around that kind of sacrifice because it's just so different from the way most of us are wired. In fact, let me just read this quote to you. It's another one that I've shared on past occasions, but it's from Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was the pastor of Willow Creek Church, one of the largest churches in America, and in his book, Descending into Greatness, this is what Hybels wrote. He said, we humans, I love this, we humans, especially Americans, have an almost incurable pull up and to the right. 
It is just built into most people to want to climb the ladder and get ahead. I guess we believe that if we can just get to the top, there will be more joy, more satisfaction, and fulfillment waiting for us there. And I love that quote, but here's the deal. Without slinging mud, because that's not my point here, the irony of that quote is if you follow the unfortunate story in Christian circles over the last several years, we see that Hybels himself, like so many other Christian leaders, have shipwrecked their faith, fell victim to what Hybels warns us about, that incurable pull up into the, le- up into the, to the right to always be grasping for more, more self, more glory, more pleasure. All of those things led Hybels to have a downfall where he failed his family and hurt so many people as a pastor of his church, fell victim to that selfish ambition. Maybe worst of all, he gave a watching world one more opportunity to look and say, see, I told you those Christians aren't real. I told you all that Jesus humility stuff isn't true. And Jesus came to show us another way the way of the humble servant. And so here's the deal today with this message. Really, my hope is that we would see the humility of Jesus and it would inspire us that that we want to be servants, that we want to be humble, especially if you're in any sort of position of, of leadership, whether you lead in your home or in your business or in the church, that you would have kind of that servant leader kind of, of mentality. But I also want us to see both sides of the same coin, not only how important servant leadership is, but also how destructive, self-focused leadership can be. In fact, if you look across the world today, you, you will see irreparable damage done time and time again in big and small ways through authoritarian, harsh, dictatorial leadership. Selfish, domineering, win-at-all-cost leadership is a global problem. It is a global problem. It does the same kind of damage as poverty or sickness or lack of education or any other global giant because it brings such devastation to a, a nation, to a business, to a community, to a family, to a church. And Jesus comes to show us another way. And I share this with you so that we could learn about it. But also, I wanted to take a minute and tell you all of this is why I am so excited about this year's Advent Conspiracy Project. So Steve mentioned this a little bit at the beginning. For the last 13 years, our church has done what we've called the Advent Conspiracy. We want to conspire against kind of the commercialism and the confusion of Christmas by really focusing on the true heart of Christ at Christmas. So we've chosen a different attribute or a different organization that we think is represented, represents, represents the heart of Christ. And we say we want to give as a congregation generously above and beyond our normal but budget in a way that doesn't keep it for ourselves, but goes 100% through us and to other people um, at Christmas time. So over the next several weeks till the end of the year, there's a way where you can give a designated offering online. You can find the Advent Conspiracy, or you can put a check that's marked Advent Conspiracy. And this year, 100% of what is given is all going to be to organizations that are already empowering that next generation of servant leaders. Because we see the 
damage that can be done. And so I am so excited to introduce you to one of those organizations today. It's four different uh, things that we're giving toward uh, this year. And kind of the primary organization is the B. Cole Center for Christian Leadership, which is doing a great job in the Gospy City in the Philippines. And in fact, I want to invite their executive director um, and her husband, Tim, to come on up. This is Claire Marker and Tim Marker. Many of you know Tim and Claire because they've been a part of our church. Tim actually went over as a a teacher uh, a number of times and really went with great intentions to teach God's Word. But oh my goodness, look what else he discovered while he was there. Uh, Turned out to be the love of his life. And uh, uh, through a number, after a number of years, Tim and Claire um, got married. And um, God has elevated uh, Claire into the position of the executive director of the Beacon Center for Christian Leadership. And I asked if she would share a little bit about what they're doing and what it will mean for us to partner with you this Advent Conspiracy. So, love you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Pastor Glenn and FBC for inviting us over. And so, Marayna Aga sa Indugabos, that's the Bicolano for good morning, everybody. And so, Bicol Center for Christian Leadership, or we call it BCCL, exists to equip servant leaders and great commission workers in the Philippines. And where we are, yes, Philippines, and just a little trivia, I think it's the only, um, the Philippines is the only country in the world that starts their Christmas celebration in September. So you guys are a bit late. <laughs> they start in September or they celebrate it in September? Uh, start until December 25th. Whoa, I'd know. be exhausted. I'd be exhausted. <laughs> yep. Right. Yes, Christmas carols start in September. Steve Steele would die. <laughs> he would die if that was the case. <laughs> yep. So anyway, our main campus is in Legazpi City. And if you Google the words Mayon Volcano, yep, that's where we are, eight miles from Mayon Volcano. And so over the last two decades, by the grace of God, we've been able to train pastors and church leaders in different areas in the Bicol region and the Visayas. And what we do actually is that we offer um, affordable and um, training, uh, biblical training to um, our students, our pastors and church leaders that's uh, got the balance in the head, which is theological training, the heart, which is character formation, and the heart, which is ministry work and missions. Just a little story about that picture at the far side with a kid and the guy in blue shirt. That's actually Dwight. He's an American missionary, and he and his Filipino wife just graduated from BCCL last June. And during the pandemic, they would see these kids collecting garbage to sell to junk shops to help provide for their families or for their schooling. And they just felt for them because, like in the Philippines, the weather is either hot or hotter. (laughs) So they just started giving, like, a bottle of cold water to these kids. And the next day and the weeks that followed, they would bring back an empty bottle (laughs) because for them, cold water is a luxury. They don't have refrigerator in their homes. And so they would um, go uh, drop by Kuya, it's a big brother in Filipino, Kuya Dwight's house, to ask for cold water. And so uh, Dwight actually has a heart disease, and his house is in the second level of their apartment, and so it was hard for him to go up and down. So what he and his wife did, they tied a bag at the end of a rope, 
they put the cold water in them with some goodies for the kids, and they would drop it down <laughs> to the kids. So he looks like he's literally fishing kids for Christ. <laughs> and so after a few years, by God's grace, they started a very vibrant children's ministry in the community, and now they have a house church. And the way that uh, BCCL mentors them is that he would usually drop by BCCL, and the last time he dropped by BCCL, he, he told me, Teacher Claire... We're going to baptize like 10 young people in our house church. I don't know. This is my first time. What do I do? What do I say? (laughs) And so uh, uh, one of our staff is actually a church planter, Pastor Joseph. And I told him, Pastor Joseph, maybe you can mentor Mm -hmm. Dwight on how to do it. And so Dwight, last November 13th, sent us pictures of a very uh, memorable baptism ceremony at their house church. And so we're just thankful to God that we're able to do this. And over the last 22 years of our ministry, actually, we are now um, training a next generation of leaders, if we can move forward, yeah. We are now training the next generation of leaders in the Philippines, and not just spiritual next generation, but also biological, Mm -hmm. like those two senior ladies there. The first one is Nena. She started uh, attending BCCL classes when she was 65, and she was doing Bible study, and after two years of uh, finishing the whole course, that Bible study turned out to be a church plant. And um, over the years, she's been serving, uh, leading that church, but sadly, uh, because of diabetes, she's gone blind. And now her son, Roy, is now attending BCCL, will be graduating, and he's pastoring that wow. church now. And also, Socorro, that's her adopted daughter and spiritual daughter, also helping her lead the church. And then there's this guy, Ronnie. Um, he graduated a few years ago. After he graduated, he was an ordained a pastor. And then he discipled John Jordan, and now he's been ordained a pastor. And he's also attending at BCCL. So we just praise God because uh, those who have been trained, almost a thousand of them, are now ministry wow. leaders and young pastors in the area. That's great. So. Moving forward, we, we pray that we'd be able to offer missions training course because we know that the task is unfinished in the area of cross-cultural missions. There's 3.2 billion unreached people in the world, and most of those people are in Asia. And so we want to help in that aspect as well. We hope to start that training program in February and also continue partnering with our students in their uh, local outreaches as well. Two years ago, we started... Project Biaya, Biaya means blessing, and we helped our students who wanted to start Bible studies in new areas by um, help, actually FBC helped us start this one, so we're very thankful. Um, Yes, we we were able to give like warm meals with gospel tracts, and now we're on the uh, second phase of it because uh, over the last year, um, they were, uh, our students were able to start like 17 Bible studies in new communities, and now we're helping uh, give out Bibles for them, for those Bible studies. And so um, uh, for the things that we need for the ministry, we would be very grateful for God's provision for the upgrading of our facilities, like we need a classroom for our missions, uh, training um, a program for equipment and stuff like that, and upgrading of our 20-year-old uh, almost dilapidated building. And so we just pray that God would provide for that. Also, uh, uh, 
Tim and I will be going, uh, moving to the Philippines in January, but the director's quarters not yet that livable. At least we have a room and a bathroom, but no kitchen yet. And um, most of the housing is a bit uh, gutted. And so we pray for provision for that. And so we also will start a cafe uh, outreach ministry next year as a part of the mission training program that we're starting. And we will start that with training uh, with the missions conference in February 2023. So please be praying for us. And with the next slide, that's our, our staff. We are just so grateful to FBC for more than 20 years of support and prayer. So you can see the volcano behind us. <laughs> well, you're welcome to this. not going off now, but it's gone off other times while you've yes. been, been there. Yeah, so. so thank you so much. You bet, you bet. Let's, let's appreciate Tim and Claire. Thank you so much. So do you see kind of that humble heart that says, by God's grace, we want to, we want to do this. The Philippines is actually so strategic of, as a, a place to train up Christian uh, people that are actually go, end up going out all across the world. And so uh, BCCL has operated on a very modest um, budget for, for years. And so this year we want to bless them with some funds to get those and hopefully even more projects um, done. And so as you give towards Advent Conspiracy between now and the end of the year, um, that's what that's going to go for. Um, I mentioned there are some other organizations, and you'll be hearing from uh, them in the weeks to come, too. We are also going to be giving to Aslan Child Rescue, um, which does work predominantly in very difficult places around the world, Muslim-majority countries, including the very challenging place of Mali, West Africa, where, believe it or not, God is at work uh, through some servant leaders there in compassion and leadership training programs, as well as in Amman, Jordan. We are also going to be giving to a local ministry here in the Central Valley um, Teen Challenge, which helps people um, overcome uh, life-controlling substances, specifically drugs and alcohol, but really all kinds of things, ultimately with the the gospel message. And so Faith Home Teen Challenge is for adults um, uh, uh, here in our Central Valley, and we want to help them because not only are they helping them kind of overcome those things, but also reintroducing them into their community, into their families that have been torn apart so often and introducing them not as self-focused people but as servant leaders. And then the last thing that we're going to do is there's a portion of the money that we are going to hold back as a church uh, to begin a new fund for people that are called into vocational ministry. So there are people in our church that say, I want to serve the Lord and they need that next step of of seminary or Bible college or some sort of education. We want to be able to help them We already have some people in line for that. And I'm so excited to announce that that is going to forever be called the Steve Newman Servant Leadership Fund. And that's what that's going to be for, is helping people in vocational ministry. So if you were here earlier, you know that today is a day that we were celebrating um, 25 plus years of Stephen Hawley's uh, ministry here at First Baptist. And um, if there's one word that encapsulates uh, Steve's work here, it is servant leader. If there's something I've learned more than anything, it's about that heart to serve. Um, Because what you would find is your senior pastor of this church out in the parking lot pulling weeds or picking up trash. I don't know if you noticed, know this, but he would always park in the farthest spot away, oftentimes across the, the street, because he would want to make sure that, that there were spots for people that would, would come here. And so there were simple little things like that, and at least in my life, even more substantial things, like looking at a younger guy coming up and saying, hey, how can I 
partner with you? How can I help mentor and encourage you? How can I give you responsibility and even begin to share the pulpit and share leadership? All of that is just this model of servant leadership that has been a huge blessing um, to this church. This church is, is, is not a perfect church by any stretch, but we are largely unified and healthy and outward focused um, in large part because of the leadership of, of Steve. And the deal was it was never about him. It was always about Christ. So I'm excited that one of the, the things that we're going to do is begin this Steve Newman a Servant Leadership Fund. So that's Advent Conspiracy. You'll be hearing a little bit more about that in the weeks to come. Um, but you may ask, well, how do, how do I do this in life? Because you look at the life of, of Christ or even, you know, a, a Christian example like a Steve Newman, and you think, how do, I, how do I begin to have that? How do I begin to have that kind of patience, that kind of, of others' focus, that sort of ability to not kind of blow my top when I'm under uh, pressure and, and still keep God's heart even in the, the, the midst of things? And you look at Jesus and you say, how did Jesus do it? Well, of course, he was God. We covered that. But the reality is, is, is the way that Jesus did that and the mindset that Jesus had is available to every single one of us. Paul says it like this. How do you become that kind of servant? He says, my attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. My attitude. You see, it begins with my attitudes. Before I even change my actions, which is what we want to do, we change our attitude. Before we change kind of the output of our life, we change the outlook that begins by saying, God, you first and others before me. And I want to just close with this. The ultimate result for Jesus is that because he demonstrates that kind of humility and shows us this new kind of of deity, this upside down, servant-focused kind of leadership, where is Jesus now? He is exalted at the right hand of God. In fact, what is, what is, how does that, that passage end? It says that he was given a place above everybody else and that one day at his name of Christ Jesus as Lord, every knee shall bow. And notice what it says. It says those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth will all acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And so that means even the, the demons believe the angels in heaven will bow before him. Every person on, heaven, on earth, whether they've accepted him or rejected him, will ultimately one day see his power. Even those below the earth in hell will recognize the mistake that they made to not bow their knee to Jesus Christ. And so I want to just end this message by just pleading with you that you wouldn't wait until it's too late to not only begin that service attitude in your life, but to, to just begin that relationship by saying, Jesus, come into my life. I want to begin to follow you, and you can do that um, today. In fact, I'd love to talk with you even at the end of this service about how you could do that. But let me just offer a word of prayer, uh, and then we want to invite our closing, our worship team out for our closing song. God, thank you so much for the teaching of your word. Thank you that you use this beautiful song by an unknown author to be incorporated into a letter that still speaks with such power to our life today. Thank you, Lord, for the model of Jesus Christ who came as a servant. And would that be true about each and every one of us? Help us to even realize the places in our lives where there could be less of us and more of you and more of other people. Lord, we also thank you for this opportunity throughout Christmas to to join with the Advent Conspiracy and and raising up that next generation of servant leaders. I pray that you would uh, empower all across this church a spirit of generosity and sacrifice um, to see your kingdom advance. We love you. We thank you for your word and for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.